before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today, we're going to start by talking about a huge bankruptcy in the retail world, the bankruptcy of Toys R Us. And then we're going to move on to uh, some thoughts on bank M&A. So, Chris, let's start with Toys R Us. This week, they filed for bankruptcy, done in by heavy online competition and a really large debt load from a 2005 private equity buyout. It's the latest and largest in a string of retail bankruptcies this year. Kids clothing store Jim Bree went bankrupt. Payless Shoes went bankrupt. Radio Shack, uh, they filed the rarely seen chapter 22, their second bankruptcy in a couple of years. So if I chapter 11 twice, you get chapter 22. It's obviously an awful environment for retail in general. And it really begs the question, you know, is this kind of the bottom or are things going to continue to get worse from here? I think some sharp players are thinking, hey, retail valuations are extremely low. There's always going to be a need for a physical store presence. And they're kind of striking while valuations are low. You know, you see Amazon buying Whole Foods is probably the best example of that. But Staples got bought out by a private equity firm. Nordstrom's is exploring taking itself private with a private equity firm. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. you. know, Is this the internet is eating the world? Is this the nadir for retail? Or is it somewhere kind of in between? First of all, I'd like to uh, offer a comment to any miners who listen to our podcast. Toys R Us is not going to liquidate. So if yeah. you think that you're never going to be able to buy toys there again, I love toys for an adult and by an adult standard of how much I care about toys. But if any kids are too worried, they're not going to close any international stores. They probably won't close that many domestic stores. I think that in terms of the specifics here, like everything, it's fact specific to these circumstances. You know, if you look at the issues unrelated to their debt coming out of their LBO, it's fairly modest. If you look at this week at Mattel and Hasbro, presumably it'd be hit very hard and are very sensitized to the online issues, but couldn't probably care less about Toys R Us's debt load. They're not down that much. I mean, over the week, Hasbro's basically flat. Mattel's down about 7%. Not good, but in a one-day uh, trade-off was bad, but but not overly dramatic. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Look, this is a Toys R Us. Their business has clearly been impacted by Amazon. Their same mm-hmm. source sales as much of retail is. Their same store sales are down. Their business is a little bit smaller than it was a couple years ago. But this is a classic bankruptcy in that the business is fine. It's not going to liquidate. This is just an over-leveraged business. They're going bankrupt. They're going to wipe away some of their debts, convert a lot of their debt to equity, and then they'll continue operating. You know, this is still a profitable business. They did about 500 million in operating income, about 800 million in adjusted EBITDA. So it's still a profitable business. It just had too much debt as a legacy from this buyout in 2005 that they could never kind of outgrow the pace of that fixed cost. Yeah. I mean, this was originally a club deal. It was originally set at about 20% equity, but that equity went way down kind of subsequently after the deal closed. And at every step, the at each iteration of communication between the various entities, they kind of were happy to take fees and money out without putting a lot of investments in. Well, if you look at a lot of the retail doom 
there's especially doom in the kind of stores that I would hate to shop in as an activity. Uh, you have a perfect alternative, of course, with Amazon. You have alternatives in terms of high-end. I mean, I love like German board games and kind of high-end classic toys at very small retail stores that are actually nice to shop in. Then you have a lot of interest from kids in video games that you can just buy directly that you don't need to go to any store in. So I think some of the things that Toys R Us are doing to kind of try to make it cool to go to, you look at they had uh, Nerf shooting ranges and drone flying and some of the more interactive stuff that would get kids to want to go to a big box store was too little too late. But when they kind of wash this through bankruptcy and it's going to be a big time-consuming, expensive process. A lot of value is going to get eaten up in, in the process. But uh, when they come out of it, I think kind of try and go further in that direction of make it a destination that kids want to go to. And that's exactly what a lot of the analysts or a lot of people who are looking at this were saying. Like Toys R Us has been opening up these new stores with interactive things. And one of the issues was when you've got this $5 billion debt burden, you actually can't convert your stores fast enough to that if you're seeing this really good returns from them because that debt burden is eating up so much cash. But it's interesting to think about, you know, I look at Bed Bath & Beyond. They reported disastrous earnings this morning and their stock was down like 20% because of those earnings. You know, you look at Bed Bath & Beyond or Barnes & Nobles, they're trading at like four times EBITDA. They they have pretty clean balance sheets for the most part. Barnes & Nobles doesn't have much debt. Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, it's very reasonably levered. And you look at them and you say, hey, these are really cheap. Does a private equity player step in here and take advantage of how cheap it is by levering it up a la what Toys R Us was done in 2005? Or do these things, you know, when I think about a Bed Bath & Beyond, what's the appeal of going there versus window shopping there and buying it on Amazon cheaper with less overhead? Or Barnes and Nobles, what's the point of going there and buying physical books versus Kindle? Like I know some people like physical books, but there are a lot of advantages to Kindles where you don't have to lug it around. It's probably cheaper. You can get it instantly. You know, where do you kind of fall on that spectrum? Heavily in the, it's hard to come up other than in very uh, specific kind of niche markets, kind of what you need a second Amazon for. Kind of Sears has some more business. Sometimes they're price competitive and very heavy objects that Amazon just doesn't want to deal with the shipping on. But like why you need a second or third or fourth, maybe private equity can, maybe to get cheap enough, private equity can make it work with a lot less debt. But I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's just interesting because, you know, you see Amazon, like their their new things, it's almost like a return to the old, right? Their mm-hmm. new thing is they're buying Whole Foods to get the grocery store presents. They're actually starting to open up physical bookstores because they see a need for physical bookstores, both to help with shipping and distribution and because they think they can turn that into profitable business. You see that and I see that and I say, hey, if Amazon's moving there, like, is that the bottom? Is Especially Barnes & Nobles. You know, a lot of those retail spaces, they are like congregation centers. They function as also cafes and stuff. It's very interesting to me, but it's just a tough one to suss out. Anyway, we'll stop there unless you want to have less thoughts. I, I just before. wanted to turn to one thing specific to Toys R Us. It was very interesting to me how little the debt priced us all in. I tend to think of the bond market as pretty smart, although, uh, geez, I, I never can... The, the one security I, I probably have least interest in is that kind of corporates trading right around par, and it was really close and really stable for such a long time until this announcement came yeah, out. Yeah, well, you know, you think about $5 billion debt versus $800 million in EBITDA, even in a liquidation, the debt probably is factoring in, hey, we're probably going to get made pretty close to whole. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a liquidation. It's going to be an ongoing business and we're probably going to get made pretty close to whole just because 
you're only buying the business at six or seven times EBITDA. And that's generally kind of where retailers go for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's turn over to bank M&A. Sure. You know, last week we talked about the surprising absence of uh, telecom mergers so far this year. And sure enough, yesterday news breaks that T-Mobile and Sprint are for like the third time in the past year back in merger talk. So maybe we'll kick some mergers off here. But this morning, there was a Wall Street Journal article discussing the lack of bank M&A. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it had some stats. Total bank mergers are down year to date. We're on pace for the worst year of bank mergers since 2009. And it's not only that mergers are down, but merger activity has been focused in really small banks. Larger regional banks have shown no indication they plan on getting larger. A lot of them have specifically come out and said, we're not in the market for M&A. And the mega banks, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, they're just precluded from buying both for political and deposit limit reasons. And, uh, you know, the lack of bank M&A, it's been a huge disappointment to a lot of people. People were predicting that the Trump administration and a big rally in banking stock would really result in a return to pre-crisis merger appetites. So, Chris, there are a lot of different reasons people have for why they think kind of there's been this non-deluge of bank M&A. We can go through those reasons, but I'll turn it over to you. You know, what are you kind of thinking is why there's no bank M&A? One reason is similar to the problems we've seen on telecom and discussed last time, but it's even more important to bank M&A, which is regulatory uncertainty, uh, specifically on the tax side. It's very, very hard to come up with bank deal pricing if you don't know mm-hmm. what the tax rate's going to be for the vast majority of the banks, the ones that are taxpayers. It is uh, very helpful to have lower rates for the banks with big NOLs. It's unhelpful, but in all cases, it's helpful to know. Yeah. So no, it, the first thing we've mention. said it multiple times. And look, if everyone agrees a bank's worth 15 times after tax earnings, just to take a number, you know, the bank is worth 20 to 30% difference, just depending on if the tax rate is 35 or 15%. So, you know, this uncertainty over if tax reform is going to happen, I, I think it's a real killer in the bid ask. There's some other regulatory uncertainties that impact too. A lot of, of federal banking regulation, I joke, it has to do with how much loans you're supposed to give to people that you know aren't going to pay you back. And sometimes there's real paradoxes where you can get in trouble if you're giving too much or too little. And sometimes for the same person or neighborhood, you're supposed to do things that are impossible, literally impossible. Where there is regulatory oversight on a specific institution, they put you in the box in terms of M&A. I mean, one of the first things they do is make it very clear, you can't do any deals if you have Community Reinvestment Acts. And there's a lot of both regulatory aggression and regulatory ambiguity right now. And so we have those issues that really slows things down. And the regulators that lose a member institute, lose uh, money related to the insurance relationship with the government, they sometimes don't want to uh, allow for deals. And it's much more opaque than, say, dealing with antitrust, where there's a clearer standard. So I think the regulatory issues is a big deal. Boards have uh, sometimes mixed loyalties, especially with smaller banks. They, they can be not always that progressive in terms of looking at deals. And at the big end, anybody who's missing the cutoff on the systemically important standard wants to stay out of that cutoff. So mm-hmm. you're not going to have any deals, I would say, ever that are going to combine to create a new systemically important institution. No, I, look, I, I think those are all fantastic points. You know, the, the one thing you, you hear frequently cited is people really thought the Trump regime was going to have a much lighter regulatory touch. Mm-hmm. And it, to date, they haven't seen tons of evidence. Now it's still early, but they haven't seen tons of evidence 
A lot of people were pointing to Capital One tried to buy Cabela's banking unit in their financial arm, and they actually got rejected by the Fed. And they were pointing to that like, hey, this is a clear sign that they're going to be really involved. They they thought that might have been the sign of a not light regulatory touch. The other one that I think is interesting is, you know, this huge run up in bank stocks. Bank stocks are up 35% over the past year. A lot of people thought that would lead to a big wave of M&A. And in many cases, people are saying, hey, this is actually hurting M&A because maybe the banks are trading for above where the the acquirers want to pay. Or maybe the acquirers just always had stuck in their head, hey, that bank, their stock trades for 10. We're going to take them out for 12 a year from now. All of a sudden, their stock's at 13 and they just can't get over. We could have bought them for 12 last year. I thought for several years out of the bottom of the financial crisis, the problem was the kind of psychological accounting in the target boards that wanted a premium on their all-time high. Well, that problem has kind of gotten solved, but they raced through it so quickly that now the problem is every single mid-sized bank that I had some kind of takeover thesis in over the last year that hasn't happened has raced through the price that I said, this is the price I'm holding out for. If we get this, this will be a big win. And it's just gotten there without anything happening. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of those kind of mid-sized bank uh, stock prices, you know, you've gotten, you've solved the targets stock price sort of arbitrary yep. problem. And now you've created this new buyer's arbitrary problem in that they've gone so far, so fast. There was even problems with deals that were announced in August and October and September of last year. After Trump got elected, all the bank stocks ran up and there was even problems getting those original deals closed because a lot of sellers were coming back and pushed back. Hey, we'd ra- with where banks are trading out, we'd rather just be standalones. And you saw a lot of acquirers actually have to bump their bids. So acquirers today might be looking at the big run-up and looking what happened to banks who were already in deals and said... Maybe we don't want to pay a premium and risk kind of having the, us turn down or go through all that complication to maybe overpay. The last one, and I thought this was kind of interesting, is technology might be actually affecting it. You know, a lot of the bigger banks are looking to actually shed branch units because there's clearly a shift to mobile banking, online banking. You need less actual physical branch locations. And a lot of people are saying, hey, if Bank of America is looking to sell 1.6 thousand branches over the next year, you know, that's actually competition for a small bank selling themselves because a lot of times a small bank selling themselves, the acquirer is looking to get a couple extra locations in a market plus those deposits. But if you can just go buy a branch, maybe that's more accretive than actually going through full scale M&A. I don't know what you think about that. No, absolutely. I think that that provides real competition. I think that we have way, way, way more. We have more banks than we need in terms of the number of institutions. We have more branches per bank than we need. So we have way, way, way more uh, branches than necessary. And in this political climate, looking at the Trump administration in its first year, one of the best arguments for accommodations right now would be to do a big branch and headcount reduction. And it's hard to be very explicit about that goal, but you certainly don't need it to grow. If anything, you need to combine to shrink. Yep. And if you look at two other things, just looking at this past month, I've been going through a lot of the bank data. I think that it's interesting to see is you've had several credit unions, several non-public financial institutions as buyers in the deals announced this past month. And that could be a real growing trend in a way to get these institutions out of the public market where the compliance costs in some cases are eating up this obscene amount of their quarterly earnings in a way that it just doesn't make sense for an institution. I would kind of roughly put the uh, cutoff at a billion dollars. But beneath that, you know, just why would you pay all the compliance costs 
and be tiny. Yeah. And especially in a low interest rate environment, right? Where in a low interest rate environment, your margins, eventually they, they really start to shrink because there's pretty much a bottom on how low you can set deposit rates. Mm-hmm. So low interest rate, you know, those extra million, two million in compliance costs for being public, it really makes a difference. It really comes, it takes a bite out of the bottom line. So I think you're exactly right. If we continue to see rates this low, we will see a bigger trend towards smaller institutions shifting private. Anyway, I think we're pretty much done there. I'll let you wrap it up with the last word if you have one. I have nothing to add. Okay, perfect. So uh, that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. Disclosures, Chris, I don't think we're long anything we talked about. So let's wrap it up there. All right. Talk to you guys soon.